The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Juanto, and so happy to be with you once again. It is a lovely Wednesday afternoon here in Washington, D.C., and I'm excited because there is tons of stuff to talk about today. I know we're going to like run out of time. I know we're going to have amazing callers because you're a great group of listeners that always tune in. Um, the faithful Leslie Marshall Show listeners, uh, we so appreciate you. Um, but I want to get right into it because I have a phenomenal setup of folks who are here on the panel uh, for the first uh, few minutes of the show. Let me introduce in studio, I have Lauren Victoria Burke, who is the creator of CrewOf42.com, reporter, and you find her all over D.C. all the time. I always bump into her at somebody's hearing. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And also in studio, joining us. Us, we have Tiffany Dina Lofton. Many of you know her from a frequent contributor on the Roland Martin show, but she's a campaign strategist and former United States Student Association president. So we love having Tiffany in studio with us. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for being here. And then finally on the phone, calling in from the great state of Maryland, uh, we have Delegate Angela Angel, who is the state representative from District 25 in Prince George's Can County. Angela, are you on? I'm here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for having me. So, Well, having me. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I am happy that I'm here, too, as well, you know, if I could say that. Um, well, let me just get started because I'm feeling a little bit of a kind of black girl rock, kind it's of black in the girl air. magic right <laughs> now. Air. And, um, you know, last night BET had the Black Girls Rock um, edition <laughs> on, and there was a surprise guest that I think no one knew was going to show up but none other than Hillary Clinton herself and now Tiffany I know you watch were a part of it give us give our listeners a little bit of a background on what's going on sure so I mean you know like every award show they're going to be repeating itself and so if you <laughs> missed Black Girls Rock 10th anniversary last night you need to make sure you watch it when it comes on rerun to me it was phenomenal and there was so much excellence in the room they had they had done a great job Shonda Rhimes the founder of Black Girls Rock had done a phenomenal job recognizing hmm. um, people from all different generations mm. from all different sectors of media and and um, organizing we had all three of the founders of uh, Black Lives Matter on mm. that got recognized yesterday. Wow, we had um, the young lady who played Rue in uh, Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. And that little girl and is phenomenal. Amazing. She's she phenomenal. was she's on phenomenal. point. I don't know who wrote her talking points. <laughs> Nobody needed to because she was off the she chain. So on point. And the performances, Brandy slayed. <laughs> and it was awesome. And so Hillary Clinton came up um, towards the end of the show okay. and introduced Shonda Rhimes and said, I quote, because I, I had to make sure that I tweeted it. You know, we're all on Twitter last <laughs> That's night. Right. That's so right. if you missed it, make sure that you uh, go to the hashtag Black Girls Rock. But she said, and I quote, uh, black women rock and black families rock because black women rock. Mm -hmm. And when black women, black families rock, the world rocks. Wow. And the whole That's world, powerful. I mean, the whole audience Exploded. went, wow. Exploded. They were like, yeah, yeah. we do. <laughs> <laughs> so then Rihanna got up and she got recognized too. And she said, listen, all girls rock. 
but black girls on just on a different level. <laughs> and I said, there is so much magic in this room. And to see the kids in the audience that were there to recognize, mm. who got recognized. There was this one girl who found a bunch of books and donated to some kids in Jamaica. And it was just, it was incredible. Well, I think it's, it's so important. And I think, Lauren, you write a lot about this mm-hmm. um, in all of your publications. But we're at a moment of affirmation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that there's something powerful. I think a lot of people kind of take it in a lot of different ways. But I think that there are so many things kind of out in society generally right. that are constantly degrading the way that we see ourselves that we need moments like this to kind yeah. of pour into you. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, after 300 years of American history, anything that is affirming African-Americans is considered sort of different mm-hmm. <laughs> and new and exciting, which mm-hmm. it actually should be. I, I didn't see it because I was at a DeRay McKesson event last <laughs> night, but I'm glad to hear, I'm really glad to hear that the three young women, women who founded Black Lives Matter were honored because I think they don't get anywhere near the amount of media attention they should get. Right. Part of that is that they are on the West Coast, but so what? I mean, right, we have media right. on the West Coast, and, right, and they right. were the founders of really what I think will be considered as a second civil rights movement, and uh, and certainly, you know, what ha- tends to happen in the press, and, and this is not to blame anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. if DeRay gets attention, DeRay gets attention. It's not his fault right, he gets right, attention, right. right? Him in that blue vest. Exactly, Girl. right? Girl. <laughs> exactly, a cute little vest. But he, you know, obviously these three women started this, and, and they should get a lot more attention than they do. So that's really good to hear. Yeah. Well, if you're tuning in, you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and I'd love for you to join into the conversation. Give us a call, 888-653-7543. That's that's 888-653-7543. And you can always follow us on Twitter at The Leslie Marshall Show. Um, let me also give you some of the hashtags for some of our listeners. Um, our guests in studio, you have uh, at MD Advocate Angel, at Tiffany D. Loft, and I, and at LV Burke. So come on, join in the conversation. We want to hear from you. So, Lauren, I'm also going to go to you because you flagged uh, a little bit of Maryland politics. And I know we'll start this conversation. And Angela, we're going to bring you in here, too. Um, But you've been covering the Donna Edwards, Chris Van Hollen race. Right. But there's a lot happening in the state of Maryland. You mentioned (laughs) DeRay. A lot of our listeners know that my husband's running in Maryland. Uh, Hi, Will Juando. And so it is a it is an interesting time in Maryland that I think is unexpected for kind of local politics. Exactly. So so what what do you see? What's been happening? Well, it's obviously an exciting time. You know, in the case of Donna Edwards, she's a new poll came out this week and she's uh, four points ahead, according to that poll in the Washington Post of uh, Chris Van Hollen. There was a poll before that that had her a little bit more ahead than four points. And it'll be a turnout, you know, situation. Obviously, it's April 26th. It is a primary day. You will have a lot of excitement around, uh, obviously, Hillary Clinton and Senator Sanders running. But uh, Donna Edwards, you know, I think is seen by a lot of people as someone who has a slightly uphill battle because there's always been this thing of her not doing constituent service well. And, you know, she didn't get the endorsement of the CBC PAC. And I think, frankly, that was a big mistake (laughs) by the CBC. I'll be talking to some of the members next week about that. But, you know, I do think that there's a a good chance that Donna Edwards will become only the the second African-American female in the United States Senate in 227 years. So she has a historic, this is a historic race. 
when I hear some of the reasons that she wasn't endorsed by the CBC PAC, which ma- many of which are personal, I say to myself, uh, come on now. You know, mm. I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into a whole big cycle right, babble right, thing, but right. I do think there's a little bit of a double standard when it comes to women, black or white, running. It's like if they're not motherly mm-hmm. and everybody doesn't love well, them, I think there's a problem. The, the, the double standard right. for women and right. people of color when That's they right. run for elected office. That's and right. on that note, let me bring in Angela into this conversation. Angela, you're a delegate in the state of Maryland. I mean, and you face the number. You're also a Hamptonian, which is just fabulous because I am too. But <laughs> no. um, <laughs> but talk a little bit about kind of what your experience has been. I mean, and, and actually, and I, and I am a supporter of Donna, and there was a point in time where I was absolutely ridiculed for being a supporter of Donna and very much kind of almost pushed to the side, like, well, you'll, you'll change your mind or you'll come to your senses, by not just um, whites but blacks as well, because it was very much like, you know, this, you know, this shouldn't be happening. We've chosen who we want to, you know, to take this seat and how dare, you know, this, this black woman, you know, challenge what has been the decision. And, that, and that's something that we kind of face always. It's, you know, um, you know, you deal with it as both black, as women in general, and then there's kind of an additional layer put on as black women of, you know, to, to we're, we're automatically overlooked for these positions. We're automatically thought, you know, the Washington Post article, I think, was a glaring, you know, It was supposed to be an endorsement, but it was also a very much telling of how the view is that, you know, the fact that he's had all of these privileges and that his parents have worked in D.C. and that, you know, basically he's he's set, I think they said, you know, he's built to sit at this table. Well, absolutely. And that's that's the problem. That's why the policies don't reflect the people, because the policies have been consistently set for people who are white males that come from, you know, a certain level of elite families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Donna's challenging that. I challenge that every day on a state level. And, you know, I represent Prince George's County, which is very well known, you know, an affluent or, you know, has come from, has been historically known as an affluent black county. But, you know, we're just a small part of the state of Maryland, and we fight with that battle every day. So and- we are going to get ready to go to a break. But, Angela, when you come back, I want to talk a little bit about a piece that you posted. Uh, we definitely have to have some conversation about Trump and what's going on, the latest and greatest with the Supreme Court nomination. And we'll circle back to kind of electoral politics. You know, it, it's it's the season, people, so we're going to talk about it. Michael from the Bronx, I see you're on. We're going to get you in the queue, too. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Michelle Jawando, and we'll be back right after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for this afternoon, Michelle Jawando. And in studio with me, coming back again after the break, Lauren Victoria Burke, creator of Crew of 42, Tiffany Lofton, campaign strategist, and Angela Angel, state representative from District 25 in Prince George's County, Maryland. Thank you so much, ladies. Now, right before we went to the break, Michael from the Bronx called in. Michael, you... Hello, ladies. How are Hi. you? Hey, how you doing, Michael? Thanks so much for giving us a call to the Leslie Marshall Show. 
Oh, always a pleasure. And you said two words that uh, really hit the, I say hit the nail on the head, double standards. If you want some double standards, I can give you a few. First, with the, um, the easier one, the Supreme Court nominee of uh, uh, President Obama, it's funny how these Republicans in Congress don't want to do their jobs and don't even want to uphold the oath that they took. And to me, not only is that dereliction of duty and they're taking our taxpaying dollars, but to me it's also an obstruction of justice because they're trying to avoid having the court tilted from a far right wing to a more centrist or maybe even progressive. The thing is, everyone should have known this was bound to happen. Um, you know, for Michael, let me... Michael, let me tell you, if I could bring you to D.C. right now and have you go and do some Senate runs, I absolutely will. Let me just turn to you, Tiffany, because I know you guys. Thanks so much, Michael, for the call. But, you know, Tiffany, I'm turning to you because the AFL has been absolutely great on this. I mean, there's been support from all over on just a basic point, like you need to do your job, yes, right? Like, yes. you you need to make sure that, like, when you're a senator, you actually show up and do your job. And, like, right. no one else in the country can say, oh, I'm just not going to go work and do what I'm supposed to. Yeah, you know, this, and this is not new in 2016. We've been talking about how Congress hasn't done anything since 2014, 2013, um, you know, in the progressive movement, not even focusing on immigration reform or passing that and talking about how we're going to protect voting rights, uh, health care, all those things that we have asked and been waiting on Congress to take action on, they have delayed. And so not only is this the most inactive Congress we've ever had, but considering that you said it's election season, it's that time of the year again. Mm -hmm. I think that all of our people who are participating in um, politics and listening to the debates, they understand now, I think more than ever, that it's not just about the president and who you elect, that it's actually about local races. And so people are paying way more attention now because they're like, okay, well, Obama can go ahead and nominate president. Obama can nominate whoever he wants. Mm Mm-hmm. But nothing will get done because Congress isn't doing anything. Right. And it's pissing people off. Can I say pissing on TV, on the radio? <laughs> it's pissing people off. And so we need to focus on the local races after this and who we can move after. And, and Congress is just reemphasizing what we think about them already. I mean, this this is the thing, you know, for, mm-hmm. for those regular listeners, you know, my husband is running in Maryland, mm-hmm. Will Jawando, willjawando.com. Mm-hmm. And the <laughs> biggest thing that we find when mm-hmm. we're out there and for folks who know I'm a mom of three, and then I have the job here at CAP and kind of do some things on the side. But when you go out and you tell people that there's an election, most people don't even know. Mm-hmm. And it's like there are people who are completely disconnected from the system. Right. And then folks use that and say, you know what? Well, I don't have to pay attention to these voters in this state. I don't have mm-hmm. to pay attention to communities of right. color or young people or our seniors because, you know what? They're not voting. They're not showing up. So I'm just not going to pay attention. Let's talk about that because my, my uncle who lives in, and, you know, my uncle is not all the voters in America. But I use them <laughs> as an example because he is a retiree. Um, has not participated recently in national elections, but is very aware about what's happening in Inglewood, Los Angeles, mm. and participates participates in those local community events. I think the confusion is not so much folks don't know that there's an election going on. It's that they don't know the deadlines, mm-hmm. the dates, where they should go, 
what kind of information or paperwork they need when they go to the voting polls. And all that is strategic. That's not just because people That's just right. don't know. That's it's right. strategic so that it is confusing on purpose. We saw I saw an article on Monday and talked about it on the Roland Martin show on Tuesday. There were folks in Arizona waiting in line for five hours to cast their ballot. And Lauren, what? I know you see this. That's right. Who did that? <laughs> yeah. You see this all over. Yeah. And Angela, I'm going to bring you into this conversation too. But Lauren, I mean, this is something like you've been talking about voter suppression that uh-huh. we're seeing all over the country. Right. Well, yeah, obviously the voter suppression thing is a Republican-driven um, idea and strategy that happened once President Obama got elected. We saw them starting to pass laws across certain states, effectively two years after he showed up. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the Republican Party needs to figure out what what they're doing at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, you cannot keep showing up in Washington for $174,000 a year and do absolutely nothing, which seems to be their strategy right now. Mm. You know, obviously the House is returning after two weeks uh, of of break to try to figure out the budget, which is unlikely to to have – we're unlikely to do anything with that. But, you know, this whole thing of hating the government, going against the government, of course, all that started when President Obama, you know, all of a sudden. sudden, And everybody wonders why (laughs) people don't like – right. Don't like government. And – this is their. This has been their marketing against the government the entire time. So it, it back. I think it has backfired on them with Trump around because he's able to argue you people don't do anything and right. then they're trapped. That's right. And Angela, you right you know that? you've taken a leadership amazing. role on issues that around is. domestic violence in Maryland, but you're even seeing kind of not not movement in the state of Maryland from even Democrats in your own party. Absolutely, and, and it's just like you said. It, it's it's all contingent on the fact that we don't have enough people paying attention, weighing in, and knowing what we're doing. Um, you know, it, it it frustrates me. I cannot tell you to any end. Uh, especially, I used to do um, national elections and do a lot of national organizing. Then I moved to more local state, and of course now I'm a representative. But and now it frustrates me when I see all of these movements about even when we get to police brutality when we. Talk talk about, you know, our criminal justice systems, and nobody's discussing the fact that those are state policies. Your president, even your congressman, is not necessarily going to be weighing in on how your local police are behaving. Mm. You need to get active in your local sheriff's race, on your local, you know, your local state representatives, your state house, your state senator, your local county council, or however board that, races. you know, mm-hmm. and, we, and we just, we are not having those discussions, and I think she was right when she said it's by design. When you start looking at, they don't teach us, you know, growing up in politics, they, we talk about the national system. And even then, we don't even really talk about Congress and how people are elected to Congress and who represents you, but we talk about the president, you know, and people don't understand in many ways, that's a red herring to get us all running in this direction, not realizing Obama couldn't move half his policies because he didn't have anybody in Congress to support him. That's right. And, and, it's, and that's not by design. I mean, we're talking about the presidential right. election, which is hugely important, but I think I read recently 98% of Congress seats are up. And that's right. Angela. I'm like, y'all need to be up in there like it's a sale. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Angela, (laughs) Tiffany, Lauren, you have been amazing. I can't say it enough. So appreciate you. Going to have to have you back to the Leslie Marshall Show. And you have to promise to say yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. There you go. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back after the... Good 
Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and I love being here and listening to all your great thoughts and comments and having an absolutely amazing panel back to back to back. So if you are interested in joining the conversation, and you know I love to hear from you, give us a call at 888-653-7543. That's 888-6LESLIE. And for our next panel, I am excited because I think we have, for the first time in studio on this show, Brendan Duke, who is the Associate Director of Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress. You can find him on Twitter at Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N underscore Duke. Brendan, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. Thanks so much. And also joining us, who's a friend of the show, Layla Zidane, who is the Managing Director for Generation Progress. You can find her on Twitter at Layla, L-A-Y-L-A underscore says, S-A-Y-S. And again, you can find me on Twitter at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Jawando. But I am excited about this segment because Brendan released an absolutely amazing and thoughtful paper that really looked at the fact that millennials are working harder than they've ever, than anybody (laughs) ever worked before, which runs counter to this kind of narrative of like lazy millennials who just kind of want as much as they um, can get their hands on as quickly as they can. Um, But they're being paid substantially less than any other generation. So tell our listeners a little bit about the report. What gave you the inspiration to kind of write this? And I encourage those who are listening to go and check it out online. Well, for full disclosure, I am a millennial. I turned 30 <laughs> last year, and so this report looked at 30-year-olds. And I looked at how much a 30-year-old makes today versus 30 years ago, and I found that there was no raise, that wages did not go up at all over that 30-year period, even though this generation of 30-year-olds is the most educated generation of 30-year-olds in American history. Wow. Our economy is 70% more productive. We are a richer country than we were 30 years ago. But millennials aren't making any more money, and that's a real problem for folks trying to get their lives started to buy a house, save for retirement, and kind of make that transition from young adult to just plain adult. That's right. And so, you know, Layla, what I thought was really interesting about the report, I mean, just kind of there was so much to go into, but I think in some ways what we found out runs counter to this kind of narrative of millennials. Um, And I thought that that was really important for people to understand that we've always valued the value of work, young people, millennials, this country. There is a foundational principle of working hard and you can achieve the American dream. But that dream, according to the data, is out of reach for so many people. Michelle, I think that's like absolutely right what uh what the american dream is for so many people is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and millennials have done everything they've been told to do they went to college they got that degree they took out a lot of money on loan to pay for that degree can i get an amen (laughs) and people uh 
That's incredible. <laughs> um, but we have over 40 million borrowers in the United States right now who owe a collected $1.3 trillion. I'm a part of that. Debt. Law school loans. I mean, I'm sure a ton of people in their uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, we have people in their 60s who are still paying back student loans. Um, and so for, for a millennial who actually has worked really hard, has done everything that they thought they should do, were told they should do, and now um, is suffering the consequences of, um, as Brendan, I'm so glad you wrote this paper because it really supports, um, you know, what what we're seeing here at CAP at Generation Progress, that young people are working hard, they're doing what they're being told to do, but the economy is just not working for them the way that they're working for the economy. Now, some one of the questions that I have, though, is the lack of growth on wages. Is it also connected to the type of jobs that we have today? So, for instance, you know, my grandmother was an entrepreneur and had her business for over 20, 30 years, but you don't see or hear those stories the same way anymore. Is there any correlation to the type of economy, whether it's the gig economy, Uber, and Airbnb or um, just kind of where we are as a country now? So I didn't look at jobs uh, in particular for millennials, but they are more educated and they are taking more educated jobs. So Mm. jobs we associate with for people with college degrees, but again, they're not getting a raise with that. So even people taking on traditional jobs who aren't even dealing with the problems of the sharing economy, I think only about half percent of workers at all engage in Uber and Lyft and all those other companies. So this is really about the fact that the bargaining table in the U.S. labor market has really been tilted in favor of employers at the expense of workers. It's really hard to ask for a raise when there's 10 people willing to do your job at a lower price. And Mm. uh, millennials, they only know a labor market that doesn't work where workers have to compete for a job. And at the same time, unions used to provide a nice balance, uh, used to level that playing field a little bit, even when times were tough. They've basically disappeared. 30-year-olds today are far less likely to be members of a union than previous generations of 30-year-olds. So that's the problem there. And I would say that that's intentional, as we've seen kind of the way that the the union and the labor movement has been attacked. Um, A lot of our listeners on the Leslie Marshall Show know that the Friedrichs case was uh, a case that just came down from the Supreme Court, and it it came down in our favor only because of the death of one of the justices. So what a way to win. But, you know, a win is a win, Layla. A win is a win. (laughs) Right off the clock. Okay? Um, And so I think it's it's interesting, though, as we kind of consider you as a 27-year-old going in to negotiate with your boss, and your boss is like, well, I can let you go because there's 10 other people that want your job. That was just such an important point to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say to your point earlier about the gig economy and kind of the changing nature of the workforce, I think it's only going to get more diverse and the traditional um, worker is going to look different. Um, I think that as more people are taking part-time gig work, Um, the idea that protections are so important in this changing climate um, is something that we really have to have an honest conversation about as, um, you know, this this sector kind of grows. And um, I think whether you're part of the gig economy or you're in a traditional, um, you know, nine to six job or something in between. um, It used to be nine to five. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I added it. Maybe that's just the D.C. spin. That's the D.C. culture. Seven to eight. Um, (laughs) But let me ask you also um, what your sense is 
businesses about what companies can or should be doing because they have a role to play. And I don't know if it's the pressure from people. So Leslie Marshall listeners, you need to get involved, but like, how can we start to tip the balance back in the other direction? You know, I think companies certainly have a role to play and it's really great that we've been seeing these businesses announce uh, higher minimum wages. Even Walmart has said that they're going to raise the minimum wage they pay their workers. But what we really need to do is put a floor there to prevent a race to the bottom. It's really tempting for employers to make money. That's their job. And so it's really tempting for them when the economy is loose to try to save money by not paying their workers, which is what it really comes down to is political action, Mm. which is really where it's happening. And you're actually seeing that in the states now with these minimum wages happening across the country and uh, paid leave happening in San Francisco. So you are seeing a movement to basically enact a floor to prevent these this race to the bottom for young workers who are just starting to get uh, their working lives going. And Layla, are you seeing that there are, is greater involvement even from millennials as saying like, listen, we only want to work someplace that has some of these kind of floor protections as Brandon talks about? Yeah, I mean, I will say when you when you look at the polling, when you talk to millennials, the number one issue that they care about are jobs in the economy. Um, and so like I, everybody else, like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> millennials, they're, they're, they're just like us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, you do see that uh, there is a an understanding at a, at a much higher level than I think the media gives us credit for about what companies do have good protections, which ones don't, which states, you know, proud New Yorker, what's what's happening now, um, I think is great. But um, unfortunately, you can't just rely on on knowing what the best company to work for is and being able to live in that state or work That's for that right. company. So we really need to spread this out and make sure that it's accessible for everybody. So when we come back, I want to pick up on a conversation about kind of voter suppression and how young people engage in this democracy, because I think jobs and the economy and some of the ways that we think about our future impacts turnout and engagement. Um, and we heard some really disappointing comments not surprising but disappointing comments over the uh, Wisconsin primary even yesterday so when we come back I want to bring you guys into that conversation you're listening to Michelle Jawando the guest host on the Leslie Marshall show and we'll be back right after this break Leslie Marshall real people real life real talk 888-6-LESLIE November, you know that a lot of Republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able to win in Wisconsin. Why would it be any different for Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump? Well, I think Hillary Clinton is about the weakest candidate the Democrats have ever put up. And now we have photo ID. And I think photo ID is going to make a little bit of a difference as well. Wow. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Michelle Jawando, your guest host for today on The Leslie Marshall Show. And joining me in studio again after the break, Brendan Duke, who is the Associate Director for Economic Policy here at the Center for American Progress, and Leila Zidane, who is the Managing Director for Generation Progress. And what you just heard, our amazing Leslie Marshall listeners, is a Wisconsin GOP 
Congressman Glenn Grothman, I'm going to say it again so everybody knows who he is, Wisconsin GOP Congressman Glenn Grothman yesterday saying that voter ID laws will help the Republican presidential candidate. And if you miss that, ladies and gentlemen, and miss why I'm a little bit upset about it, then let me connect the dots. You know, the thing that we hear so often is that the reason we move forward with voter ID is because there's voter fraud and we need to protect the integrity of the the institution of voting. And we just heard the real reason why voter ID has gone into effect in so many states. And that only really happened after President Barack Obama was inaugurated. And ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about millennials, but when we talk about Americans and how upset we should feel when people are using policies to stop people from voting, it is our fundamental right and opportunity to access our democracy. And the way we've decided in this country we do it is through voting. But yet you have a member of Congress who had who who for one moment was honest and told people how he felt. So so Layla is I'm I'm just pissed off. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's disgusting. It's it's horrible that there are comments like this that are that even are said so casually because they're so accepted as as truth. And unfortunately, you know, this tactic does work to to turn young people away from the polls. Um I will say I think the stereotype of young people being apathetic um, or not caring is is a false narrative that um, you know people try to perpetuate. Um, despite the evidence to the contrary, young people um, do care a lot about a lot of the issues. You know, we were just talking about um, how much they do care about jobs and the economy. But I think the problem here is that they have a lack of trust in the system uh, because the systems that they have been told to buy into have failed them. Um, And so you see a kind of frustration with, well, why should I vote if uh, I'm not going to be able to actually change the system that's left me in debt and with um, a low paying job? And Brendan, I mean, talk a little bit about the fact that you looked at this report 30 years ago, 30 year olds were feeling some of the same angst that we're feeling today. I think what you're really seeing here is that this is right now the most, it's always been the most diverse, but it's also the most progressive generation of young people we've had in a while. And I think one of the best ways you can see that, and that has a lot of powerful people scared, is in Virginia. They're trying to make the right to work law there a part of the state constitution. Wow. Why are they doing that? Millennials are by far the most pro-union generation we, mm. that is alive today. They know that they're going to be there. They know that they may try to, you know, change the law 20, 30 years from now. So they're trying to change the rules before millennial. They don't trust. They don't trust millennials to make decisions for themselves. And that's an example of trying to tilt the system away from the most progressive and most diverse generation. I think a lot of our listeners know that here at CAP, I'm our vice president of our legal progress team. And even this week, we had a major case that came down from the Supreme Court, the Evanwell case, that basically, for one of the few unanimous decisions, the Supreme Court said, listen, we're going to count everyone. Representation in the way that we elect people is really important in this country, and it shouldn't just be for voters. And that is essentially what 
these people were trying to say that unless you're a voter, you shouldn't be counted. And I just thought about what kind of idea of privilege is that, that you're saying only the persons who show up, well, when we make it so difficult for people to show up or people lose faith and in coming into the system because of these situations. And, you know, I was glad that the Supreme Court, that the decision came down that the way that it did, but it's so important for people to kind of pay attention. Um, if you're listening, I'm your guest host for the afternoon on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, follow us on Twitter or give us a call, 888-653-7543. So, Layla, I always like to give some solutions, right, because I get really frustrated with the system, but too often I feel like people don't pay attention to what power they actually have. And I think we give away our power when we just feel frustrated and then don't do anything. So I know Generation Progress, you're doing a lot leading up into the election. Tell some of our listeners how you're engaging. I mean, to bring people into democracy and voting in spite of their massive distrust of uh, not just the institution of, of government, but politicians more specifically, um, I think we really have to connect with them on the issue, the issue at hand. And we can't just be talking to them um, about issues in an election year, but really engaging in a long-term uh, dialogue about what works, what doesn't work, and what do they want to see changed. Um, millennials are, you know, parents of young children, it's going to be young parents. and That so, would be me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I think uh, addressing family-friendly policies in the workplace are something that are so important to our generation. People who are, um, you know, mid-level career um, and are having their first child and realizing, oh my gosh, I don't have these protections that I just assumed that I had. Um, and that's something that we really want to make sure that we're talking to them about and providing the solutions that they can, uh, you know, vote in somebody who's going to champion that kind of uh, relief. And Brenda, do you think people are starting to pay more attention to the fact that we've had wave stagnation in such a real distinct way for the past 30 years? Are, are, are politicians paying attention to that? And I think you're seeing the results not in Washington, but across states. Hmm. California, New York, Californian, oh. uh, <laughs> um, you know, passing, uh, you know, getting ready to pass $15 minimum wage laws, paid leave in San Francisco. San Franciscan. Um, wow. So, so you just got it yeah, all. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, I don't live there, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I really, politicians are paying attention in places that aren't just stuck with gridlock, it, like in Washington. And I think people are going to start bringing that to Washington because it's ridiculous that uh, politicians care more about scoring political points than making a real difference for young adults who are trying to start families. Uh, buy a home, save for retirement, and kind of live the American dream. If our listeners, if you are tuning into the Leslie Marshall Show, if you're getting ready to vote, if you're in a state like a New York or like a Maryland, and you have someone who isn't talking to you about paid leave, who isn't talking to you about uh, sick leave or raising their minimum wage, that person is not worthy of your vote plain and simple. And I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I'm telling you if you want to vote for your interest, you need to pay attention to what people are doing because the fact of the matter is, for too long we've let people off the hook and our democracy deserves more. So, Layla, you know, as we get ready to close and head into the, our next segment, and I hope folks stick around to the Leslie Marshall Show because we're going to be talking about um, North Carolina and some of the really ugly things that we see happening down there. What did you think about the Carolina game? <laughs> because let me just tell you, as a Carolina law alum, and I don't know where you went to school, Brendan. Where did you go to school? 
for undergrad? Yeah. Uh, McAllister College in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. Um, My heart was broke, uh, pretty much. And, um, and I don't know how you feel about that. Well, as somebody who spends a lot of time on the internet, I immediately thought of how many crying Michael Jordan memes we were going to see. So you knew we were going to see that. <laughs> I did not expect it, but after the four, after those four seconds where Villanova incredibly came back, I, I went online to check what the creative geniuses with Photoshop did. I know. And I am sure many of them were millennials <laughs> that were creating new businesses <laughs> that were adding to the economy and trying to uh, move forward with the right kind of policies that we need. Well, Layla and Brendan, you guys have been great. I don't know if you have anything else. Oh, Brendan, where can people find your report? Because I want people to read it. Um, on the CAP website, uh, I would just Google when I was your age, Center for American Progress. That's the name of the report. Look it up. We got some good graphics. Yeah. And Layla, how can people find out about Generation Progress? Just go to genprogress.org or follow us on Twitter at, at genprogress. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you both back, okay? Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. You see, I like lock people in the studio until they say yes. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> this is Michelle Jawando. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show, and we'll be back right after the break. Leslie Marshall. Real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live, nationwide, and streaming live at Good afternoon, and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and it's always an honor and a privilege to be with you, filling in for the amazing Leslie Marshall. If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you consider it, give us a call, 888-653-7543, or you can follow us on Twitter, at the Leslie Marshall Show. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Michelle. Jawando, I'd love to hear from you. And I am excited over my next two guests, two people who I've worked with for years and respect them as both advocates and leaders in their own right. Um, in studio with me is none other than my colleague, Dr. Laura Durso, who's the Senior Director for LGBT Research and Communications at the Center for American Progress. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hello. Should I say Dr. Durso? You can. You don't have to. I love it. <laughs> so I'm going to give you, because you got all the student loan debt, I'm going to give you all the title. Praise <laughs> That's the Lord. for another segment. There we go. There we, that was the last segment. Perfect. That was, that was the last Good segue. Good segue. There we go. And then also joining us on the line, we have my sister and friend in the movement, Mara Kiesling, who's the executive director at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Hi, Mara. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So for our listeners, um, you know, you may know or and you've heard probably in the last segment, I am a big Carolina fan. Now, I am from New York. So how in the world did I get to North Carolina? So I went to law school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I went in the early 2000s. And the reason I went there was because of the North Carolina commitment to public service. So I'm this northerner showing up with my heels because, uh, you know, I'm from New York, so I wear heels on sidewalk and in grass. That's just the things that, that I, I do. do. And um, was just struck at the commitment of the institution of the state. Went down to North Carolina. They had same-day registration. They had racial justice equity classes in high school. They were doing things that I was so impressed as a southern state. 
And so I decided of all of the places that I was considering for law school, I knew I wanted to not go home necessarily back to New York um, and chose North Carolina. And in 10 short years or a little bit more than a decade, um, the Carolina that I knew when I left there at the end of 2004, 2005 is a completely different state. And so in studio and on the phone, I have my two guests to talk about this very anti-LGBT bill that came out last week in North Carolina. Um, For those who don't know, the Republican Governor Pat McCrory signed North Carolina's HB2, which essentially requires people to use multi-stall bathrooms that match their birth certificates at state agencies. But the law also makes clear that local measures can't protect people on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, which in some ways to me is the most pernicious and ugly component of the bill, because we're talking about not protecting people as a, a law that you're putting in place in the state of North Carolina. So Laura, I'm going to ask you to kind of give our listeners a sense of kind of what happened in North Carolina. What is this bill and how do we get here? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And Michelle, you set up perfectly in talking about um, sort of the the advancement of civil rights within the last several decades that we, we've now started to see this real um systematic chipping away of civil rights. And we were putting LGBT rights within that framework um, in North Carolina, because as you've noted, the uh, the bill that the governor just signed does strip away protections that existed um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a few other places um, where new municipalities were taking steps to be more inclusive with their civil rights laws. And to be clear, this was not just protections for LGBT Americans. It was new protections for veterans, for people with disabilities. And so they were sort of modernizing their civil rights structure down wow. in Charlotte. Um, and That's the, something you didn't hear. Right, and it's not being, you know, reported, uh, reported as much. You know, there's really wonderful voices I'm sure we'll get to. Um, folks like the Reverend Willie Barber who've spoken out and, and pointed out there are actually um, multiple communities hurt by this bill, um, but we've clearly seen a lot of uh, momentum around the anti-LGBT and in particular the anti-transgender pieces of this legislation. So this all came about because Charlotte took those steps to be more inclusive and to protect its citizens. And the General Assembly came back and said, uh, and they they did it very explicitly to say that they were going to target the transgender community um, and that they would not let this ordinance go into effect. And so they came back and in a matter of hours uh, had passed the bill through both houses and the governor had signed it. So my Leslie Marshall listeners, you know that I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill as a staffer. I did a little work in the state house. We don't do anything fast. <laughs> like, like there's no such thing as a bill that you bring to the floor and you pass and get it signed by the governor in like six hours. They severely limited debate. And I, I think in some ways that is a, 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 the realization that the public is with us on this issue. The majority of Americans uh, from all walks of life are supportive of LGBT inclusive non-discrimination provisions. We saw local leaders in North Carolina standing up and saying that our laws don't protect everyone and we need to fix that. Uh, and then they took this opportunity to you know, really roll things backwards and, as you said, prevent municipalities from moving forward at all. And it is sort of I don't know if irony is the right word, but, you know, for the party that talks about local control, that what they've done here um, is prevented their counties and municipalities from taking steps to support their uh, citizens. And Mara, I know you've been and you spent some time on the ground in North Carolina since this has happened. Um, 
And, you know, I'd just love for you, if you could kind of share a little bit about what it's like what it's like to be um, on the ground. But actually, before I go to Mara, I just want to ask you quickly, Laura, because I just I know that you've done some great work on looking at the economic impacts of this, because I think what's been so interesting about North Carolina is you've seen companies like PayPal say that they're not moving to the state. You know, when I was there, I lived in the research triangle. And so uh, there were tons of multinational businesses that are down there in North Carolina. Uh, so what what happened? Absolutely. Well, and what's going to happen? You know, I think uh, PayPal is one of well over 100 businesses that have come out in opposition to the bill. Bank of America is uh, headquartered in Charlotte, and they have made statements. Um, PayPal is one of, um, you know, many that have already said that they're going to take jobs away from the state. And, you know, it, it, it hurts to say that because that means that there are 400 people in North Carolina who might need that job who can't get it. That's right. And it's not because of the LGBT community. It's because the, the General Assembly and the governor have taken this really terrible stance that they don't want an inclusive and welcoming state, and they're going to pay an economic penalty from that. We've seen it in Indiana. Um, our team last year had done a quick analysis of how much money Indiana stood to lose, and it was well over $250 million. There are, because of the way the um, bill in North Carolina has been structured as well, they may very well be in violation of various federal statutes as well, which would risk federal dollars. So it's wow. not just the wow. business community who might be pulling out and saying we can take our business elsewhere because we know, and we we know from evidence that a diverse workforce is good for happy and healthy and productive employees. And that's true of uh, LGBT inclusive workplaces as well. So I think you're going to see, you know, the, the federal government also weigh in here. Oh, for uh, sure. Because there Without are potential question. dollars at risk. So Mara, I, I know you've spent some time on the ground. What is it like, particularly as a transgender woman, to be in the state of North Carolina right now? It's very scary. Um, it's uh, you know I was down in Raleigh on the day of the uh, the special session, um, which by the way happened the day it did because the Speaker of the House was in a hurry to go on vacation, um, and they just simply could not wait until April 25th. Um, but it's it's really scary. You wonder is this the time that some knucklehead in the bathroom is is going to to do something horrible um you worry if the cops are being told to um you know pay special attention to people who they profile as as trans and you know if you're if you're a kid or the parent of a transgender kid and you know the school is likely to call you in and tell you that you know, you or your kids, whoever it is, can't use the, you know, can't use the bathroom, and they're going to be set aside, set apart from the other kids, and and everybody's going to be told that you're different and not different in a good way. Um, it's really scary. Mm. Mm. So if you are just tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon. Um, and I'd love to, for you to join in the conversation. If you want to do that, give us a call at 888-653-7543. We're going to get ready to go to break. But, Laura, when we come back, I want, I want to talk a little bit about how other people can get involved in this fight and what that looks like. And, Mara, I, I want you to talk to us about how do we start to talk about living in a more inclusive community because the reality is our country is only continuing to change um, the demographic shifts um, are changing 
what this country looks like is not the same country that many of us grew up in. And I think we have to have some real hard conversations about both what that means for business, what that means for our elected leaders, what that means for how we live and work together. And we got to get this right, because when you're talking about ugliness, this is a great example of what ugly policy looks like and how the detrimental effects disproportionately affect certain communities. And we got to do better, people. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Michelle Jawanda. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. afternoon and welcome back if you're just tuning in you're listening to the leslie marshall show and i'm your guest host for the afternoon michelle jawando i love being with you and so i want to hear from you you can follow me on twitter at michelle jawando or go ahead and give us a call 888-653-7543 or 888-6-LESLIE also joining me in studio i have none other than the dr laura derso who's the senior director for LGBT Research and Communications at the Center for American Progress, and Mara Kiesling, who's the executive director at the National Center for Transgender Equality. And if you're just joining us, we are having a conversation about the really insidious, ugly bill that came out in North Carolina. Um, I've shared with you, my listeners, my my love that I really discovered of North Carolina. Um, But where this all starts is really with this government. You know, and this goes back to it's important people to wake up and pay attention to who is in office because there were a lot of people who were putting up red flags about Governor McCrory. And here you had in one day they move forward with this bill. Um, He was the first to come out against a local municipality, the city of Charlotte, uh, which is for a little bit of D.C. insider knowledge. Anthony Fox, who is our current uh, secretary of transportation, was the former mayor of Charlotte, a very progressive metropolitan southern city um, headquarters for Bank of America and a number of other businesses. And they passed an inclusive um, bill basically to update their civil rights statutes. Um, And then very quickly you saw the General Assembly move uh, to overturn that. So back on the line, Mara, I I just want to turn to you because I think one of the things that you hear McCrory saying is that this didn't take away any rights, that this didn't uh, hurt anybody, that this is just them trying to make sure that there isn't this kind of over-regulation. So what do you say to that? I mean, how do we debunk that? Well, um, you know, it it certainly does target transgender people and make us um, very susceptible to bigotry and, in fact, mandates bigotry in in state and local-owned buildings. Um, So it it, it absolutely does that. But the other thing it does that isn't getting nearly enough attention that we just sort of glazed over earlier is this law also takes away all federal, sorry, all enforcement possibilities for state anti-discrimination laws of all kinds, including race, religion, nationality, 
and and sex. It, it, it um, you know, folks in North Carolina will still have federal remedies available to them for violation of federal law, but they've gutted the state anti-discrimination laws in race, religion, nationality, and sex. Um, and it it just simply does. Uh, it, all you have to do is read the bill. It's not very long, and you can see that. Um, it takes away rights. It takes away the ability to uh, to have rights enforced. Um, it clearly hurts trans people, um, and uh, you know it it doesn't allow municipalities to raise minimum wages or require a living wage. Um, it it is a right wing extremist bill that covers a lot of ground, and it definitely hurts people. And, Laura, you know, we talked a little bit over the break that North Carolina was the leader, but it, other states like Mississippi and South Carolina are quickly trying to catch up. Why? When they're seeing businesses run from those states. and wh- What's going on here? Yeah, and, and let's be clear, there are around 200 anti-LGBT bills introduced uh, in the current state legislative session. So this isn't sort of a new phenomenon, uh, but North Carolina was the first to actually move forward uh, and do this. And I think we will see some repercussions to that. And so I think because... Um, because North Carolina has happened and we're looking at bills in Tennessee and as you mentioned South Carolina somebody just said oh well mirroring North Carolina which doesn't do anything quote unquote we're going to move forward with this bill um, and I think people are really rushing to try and get this in because um, when the more we talk about the issue and the more we expose the fact that this does as Mara said uh, you know have a significant impact not just on LGBT communities but on other communities that the business community is starting to roll out and, and um, issue its support we saw in, in Georgia that that worked uh, quite well but you know we are facing uh, a real onslaught of anti-LGBT bills and I think that um, because when we talk to the public, they're generally on our side. I think these state legislators are rushing to get these types of things through. I was pleased to see that Governor Haley said that this isn't something we need to turn our attention to. Um, so hopefully this will be uh, just a little bit of a fire and, mm-hmm. and we'll be able to tamp that out pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, but this is something that the LGBT community is facing in every corner of the country. Uh, and we are left largely unprotected from discrimination in the majority uh, of states. Mara, when you mentioned the fact that you're rolling back protections for everyone. I thought of the the quote that you often see online when they came for the blacks, I didn't say anything. When they came for the Jews, I didn't say anything. But then when they came for me and I turned around, there was no one left. And I think in some ways, unless we all kind of get engaged in this fight, we're going to turn around and we're going to see that all of us have lost protections. Mara? Yeah, I think that's right. Well, if if you've been following the Moral Monday campaign in North Carolina, I think folks down there will tell you that, you know, this this legislator legislature took a nasty extremist turn a couple of years ago. Um, they've gerrymandered the heck out of the state. They've uh, eliminated voting rights for quite a few people, and um, they've tried to solidify. Uh, solidify control. You know, we're a nonpartisan organization, um, so I'm I'm not for Republicans or Democrats, but but I'm for good government, and I'm for rights, and I'm for people doing decent, smart things. And this legislature is doing everything from disassembling, you know, one of the best higher education systems in the country. That's right. Um, they are bringing it down. Um, they are bringing it down intentionally. Um, and the people in North Carolina have to 
have to figure out how to whether they're Republicans or Democrats or whatever they are, they have to figure they out. They have to how take to it get. back. Look, let's really make America great again, okay? That's right. Come on, let's make North Carolina great again. Uh, Mara and Laura, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. You'll have to come back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Good afternoon and welcome back. This is, you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Juando, bringing it in for the last half an hour here. And the time goes by way too fast when I'm with the wonderful listeners on The Leslie Marshall Show. If I haven't heard from you, I'd love to hear 888-653-7543 or 888-6LESLIE. If you want to join in the conversation online, you can go to at The Leslie Marshall show on Twitter or at Michelle with one L Jawando J-A-W-A-N-D-O and I am excited about the next segment um, I'm excited I, this was a wonderful show I'm really great guest great energy um, but we're bringing in for the home stretch and you know it would not be right for me to come on the show and not talk about the courts um, you know for those who are new I am the vice president of legal progress at the Center for American Progress. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the courts and democracy and voting rights and criminal justice reform and how we create access for more people. But as you can imagine, D.C. right now is in the midst of one of the most heated, uh, I would say in some ways, battles on the courts than we've seen almost, some would say, for folks who've been working on this ever, over the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Um, and joining me in that conversation in studio, we have Anisha Singh, who is the campaign manager for the Why Courts Matter campaign. Hi, Anisha. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for joining us on in studio. And then on the line, we have Matt Sinovic, who is the executive director at Progress Iowa. Hi, Matt. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. And then, of course, last but definitely not least, Christine Stone of Why Courts Matter, Pennsylvania. Hi, Christine. Hey, Michelle. If you want to join and follow them, you can follow them on Twitter at Sinovic and at Christine M. Stone. And Anisha, we'll get your Twitter handle, too, on the next break and make sure everybody knows that. So, you know, we are in the midst of, like I shared, a Supreme Court nomination. And Anisha, I'm going to start with you. Um, And it just seems like we have senators who are just not interested in doing their job, which I think is really interesting because I love to just wake up and not do my job. but then I'd be fired. <laughs> and maybe mm-hmm. the American people need to fire some people who are in Congress right now. But tell people a little bit about why courts matter and the campaign that you lead. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we've been talking about this uh, Supreme Court vacancy and the obstruction that we're seeing here. But the interesting thing is we've been seeing the same obstruction in the lower courts for quite some time. You know, Barack Obama has has been dealing with this kind of obstruction uh, since he joined office. And so the Why Courts Matter campaign was started uh, for that fight originally. Uh, we, we originally started with about four states, and now we've expanded to have nine states in which we have this campaign. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, last 
last year alone, uh, we we held campaigns throughout the country, and, and Matt and Christine will talk about this a little further, but, you know, everything from rallies to petitions to LTEs, op-eds, demonstrations, meeting their senators, um, these are the things that were done to try and lift up the kind of obstruction that these senators are doing and hold them accountable for what they're doing. We're seeing the slowest rate of confirmations on the lower courts since 1950, and the largest backlog of cases in American history. So this obstruction is nothing new, um, and this is something that we've been working really hard in, in our nine states, and those are you know, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Texas, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, um, and and all of our all of our partners in all of these states are doing such amazing work to really get constituents engaged and and think about the third branch of government that people don't always think about in the same way that they think about the executive or legislative branches. What folks don't realize is the same issues we care about: immigration, labor, um, money, and politics are all affected by the courts. And we're just trying to bring that conversation forward, uh, educate the public on the importance of diverse judges, qualified judges on our courts. And the importance of this fight, because Americans are suffering and, and justice is being denied. So, Matt, you know, you and Christine are in two really important states for a host of reasons. Um, Matt, I'll start with you. Namely, your state is home to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, Senator Grassley of Iowa. So you're kind of at the center of the storm. What's that like? <laughs> well, uh, we thought we'd... Uh... Uh, have a little bit of a break from being the center of the storm after the Iowa caucus, but uh, <laughs> un- un- unfortunately, uh, our Senator Grassley has uh, taken his obstruction, uh, which Anisha uh, just mentioned, but his his obstruction on the lower courts, and has you know doubled down and uh, um, continued continued that obstruction on the Supreme Court level. So he uh, uh, sadly he didn't even wait for a day to. To go by after the passing of Justice Scalia before putting out uh, a press statement that that the president shouldn't nominate anyone, that this nomination should wait until the next president is elected. And that is, I mean, he truly could not even wait 24 hours to, uh, just couldn't help himself to, to put out there that he was going to obstruct any nominee that the president was going to make. And that's just, an, an, it's an unfortunate departure from from the history of Supreme Court nominations, which have always received a, at least a hearing in the Judiciary Committee, and it's been since the Civil War that uh, that uh, that a nominee hasn't received a hearing or a vote, and so we are. I mean, uh, we're frustrated. Iowans are frustrated with that. Uh, Republicans and Democrats that, that we're talking to, and that we're seeing turn out at at public events, at rallies, to speak to Senator Grassley. Uh, in person when he holds uh, public meetings. So it's really it's really been interesting to see people get engaged on this issue um, and and uh, get fired up because it because he is because uh, he is really uh, uh, taking on a historic level of obstruction. So, and Christine, you're from the state of Pennsylvania that's also often kind of in the center of the storm, but mm-hmm. in particular this year because you have a heated Senate race in your state with uh, Senator Toomey. So, you know, what are some of the things that you guys have been doing up in Pennsylvania? Right, right. You know, just as Matt was saying, you know, uh, Senator Grassley took the lead of, of you know, doubling down and saying um, no hearings. And it's our senator who probably more like not more than 24 hours later 
agreed with Senator Grassley and, and did the said the same exact statement. You know, and it's interesting to us because during his reelection speech, just like you said, he's one of these senators up for reelection. He wanted to tout his bipartisan uh, approach to filling judicial vacancies here in Pennsylvania. We just sort of had to shake our heads and say, Senator, what were you thinking? Because we know here in Pennsylvania, we have the second worst uh, number of vacancies next to Texas. So he likes to tout that he was, by, you know, working in this fashion and really values the federal courts. We have to sit back and really examine what is his record, what has he done, and and, and now with this, with the Supreme Court vacancy. We, it has really energized the folks we work with in our coalition. We've had this coalition in place a long time, from rallies in Philadelphia to press conferences in Scranton to, uh, you know, tracking him down at events in State College to delivering over 20,000 signatures to his regional office here in Pittsburgh. It has really been something we are, we are taking this seriously. Like you said, this is an unprecedented battle the Supreme Court, right? I mean, and when you think about that fact that, like, we're battling over the Supreme Court, so this is, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that this is not in any way, shape, or form kind of what the founders intended. Um, There are very few things that the Constitution states that you have to do as a responsibility for both the President and the Senate. Um, And this is one of those clearly, there's no ambiguity. (laughs) It says, must consent and advise on Supreme Court nominations. And the fact that it's been so difficult is just, it's, it's a special moment in history. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. And I would just add to that, Michelle, you, you hit that right on the nail of the head. And, and it's what you said in the beginning. You're there doing your job. I just got home from my office doing my job. This advising and consent, and the job is laid out. And I really think that's why Americans, I think that's why our states where white courts matter um, have coalitions. People get it. They do their jobs. It's, it's a message that resonates here in Pennsylvania. We have a lot of blue-collar workers, that mentality that's here. You know, it, it's, it's people really, you know, they look at how they're doing their job. They really believe the Senate needs to do their job. I know that. I know that's right. Hashtag do your job. So when we come back after the break, I want to talk a little bit more about how the kind of courts have become this kind of politicized thing. And we'll talk a little bit about Trump coming out with his judges for the Supreme Court soon. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. And we'll be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, straight and on point. 888-6-LESLIE.
Welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, give us a call at 888-653-7543, or you can follow us at The Leslie Marshall Show, or you can follow me at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. And back in studio is Anisha Singh uh, from the Why Courts Matter campaign and her Twitter at Anisha, A-N-I-S-H-A underscore S-113. Matt Sinovic, who's the ED at Progress Iowa, at Sinovic, S-I-N-O-V-I-C. And Christine Stone from Why Courts Matter, Pennsylvania, at Christine M. Stone, S-T-O-N-E. So before we went to break, um, Anisha, I want to bring you into this conversation we talked about the fact that like courts in so many ways touch all of the issues that I think progressives particularly care about, but everybody should care about. But it is in some ways the like neglected little sister of <laughs> our system of government. Most people don't think about the courts. Um, the only interaction that most people have with judges might be a traffic judge, you know, who's looking at one of the adjudications of a traffic ticket. Um, And I think maybe that's why you see not as many people pay attention until there's the Supreme Court nomination and then everyone really gets engaged. So, but it seems like conservatives have spent a lot of time and a lot of decades really focusing on the court. And that's why you're seeing such kind of obstruction on moving forward on what used to be a fairly routine system. We knew uh, presidents of different parties nominated a judge and they moved forward because you didn't look at who the president was. You looked at was this person qualified to do the job and then you move forward. So what has happened and how do you get people to care about this issue? That's absolutely right. I mean, we as progressives need to step up our game. I mean, conservatives have been doing this for decades and we're just getting started. So it's important for us to mobilize our base and, and organize and, and really engage folks to, to recognize how much the courts really do impact them every single day. I think sometimes people do get a little engaged when they hear that a, a case has reached the Supreme Court. But what they don't realize is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of cases that get decided on the district court level and the circuit court level um, that don't even reach the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court only hears 75 to 100 cases a year, um, but there's thousands of other cases that are being decided uh, in the lower courts that are affecting everyday Americans' lives from, you know, small businesses to the blue-collar worker next door. And we need to be paying attention to who we're putting in those particular seats before they're putting out such outrageous decisions. Half of the cases that we're seeing in the Supreme Court today are coming out of the Texas, you know, the Fifth Circuit. And these are decisions that are putting at risk unions and affirmative action and DAPA DACA. And these are these are huge things that are affecting hundreds of millions of Americans. The immigration actions from the president, that's what you meant, DAPA DACA. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, that's putting at risk, uh, deporting hun- thou- uh, millions of Americans. Uh, Five million people are at risk of being deported. Uh, 
we're, we're worrying about affirmative action. I mean, this is and redistricting and gerrymandering. And, and so we're, how did we get here? Well, it's because we have these judges in place in these uh, circuit courts that are that are conservative and that are putting out these decisions that we have to now worry about. So it's important for us to nip it in the bud in the beginning when we're actually filling these vacancies so we don't put ourselves in these positions time and time again. And now with this vacancy uh, on the Supreme Court, we're seeing these 4-4 splits, which again puts us at risk of falling back on uh, decisions of the lower courts that then is not setting a precedent. Yeah, Yeah. not setting a precedent uh, across the nation. It's just there, and then another state can have a different rule, and it's just chaos. So we need to fill this vacancy on the Supreme Court and get back to business on filling our our lower court vacancies while we have this president in place. So, Matt, you know, we've asked the uh, Leslie Marshall Show listeners whether or not we should confirm this nominee, Merrick Garland, and an overwhelming majority of our Leslie Marshall listeners said, yes, we should confirm him. And that seems to be what the American people are saying. Um, I think there's even higher numbers of whether or not we should have a hearing, but we see a majority of even our listeners are saying we should confirm him. Is that what you're hearing on the ground? That's absolutely what we're hearing on the ground. I mean, people of all political parties are kind of fed up with the political gamesmanship that's going on in the Senate with not just the Supreme Court nominee, but now, as Anisha said, like this has been happening for some time. So they are they're seeing that the lower courts are being are being uh, obstructed uh, obstructed too. And so I don't think I've seen a single poll out there that has showed anything other than widespread support for for a vote uh, for a confirmation of the of the nominee and and definitely for hearings. I mean. For hearings in the state of Iowa, it is it is supported even by to hold a hearing. It's supported even by Republicans in in, in a public opinion poll. So this is this is truly a bipartisan issue. But what they're what people are really upset about is just seeing their government not work. And the same type of mentality of of prioritizing politics above everything else. I mean, we see it when when the uh, when conservatives shut down the government a few years ago. I mean, th- that's what they're trying to do with our courts. They're trying to shut down the government and prevent access to justice. And and people have just had enough of their government not doing their job. And and so that's what they that's what they want to see. And they want to see them roll up their sleeves and get to work. So, Christine, I mean, in Pennsylvania, you know, there is this kind of work ethic that we all know from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, and you hear about the Rocky movies and running up the steps in Philadelphia. So it definitely seems that in some ways we should make sure that this happens particularly in your state, and not only just that we get a hearing or we sit down and we meet with them, but we get this done. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And what we have really been fortunate are those labor groups like you you were referencing here in Pennsylvania between the steelworkers and SEIU and AFSCME and others, they have really been there every step of the way. And, you know, part of it is because we expect that the members of the Senate to meet with the nominee, to call for a hearing, and give Judge Garland the consideration he deserves. And I can tell you, here in Pennsylvania, you know, we're, we're – trying to make sure everyone knows we need to be loud about this because at the same time the judicial crisis network an organization with dark money has been flooding our airwaves 
telling folks, hey, let's let another president, next president decide, really echoing that Republican obstruction message. We need to be louder than that. We need to be louder than we have ever been. And we need to stay vigilant on this. Really keep Senator Toomey honest when he wants to he say and claim he, he cares about the courts. Let's make sure he does. So, you know, we are getting ready to ramp up another another amazing show on the Leslie Marshall Show today. Um, I've been your guest host for the last few hours, Michelle Jawando. And just hearing from our amazing guests, Matt Sinovic and Christine Stone and Anisha Singh, Something just continues to really pop out for me, and that's like we got to get engaged because if you had people in the Senate who remember their constitutional duty and responsibility, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, if you had um, a greater understanding of local elected officials who were putting pressure on their senators in D.C. to do the right thing, we wouldn't be in this situation. And I, I actually am optimistic. I feel like we will get Judge Garland confirmed. And the reason I feel that is because he should be confirmed because of his qualifications, not for who he is or who nominated him, but because he should be a judge because he spent his whole life basically serving the American people and public service. And isn't that what we should be telling young lawyers when they're coming out of school, that if you're faithful and adhere to kind of those principles of service, then you should have the opportunity to sit on the highest court in the land. We got a lot of work to do, the American people, but I tend to be somewhat of an optimist. I don't know. I'm a crazy progressive that tends to believe that if you put in some work and you have a little bit of faith, some things can work out. But we just got to get to work. So, Senate, do your job. It's been great being with you here on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. Follow me on Twitter. Follow the Leslie Marshall Show. And I hope to be back with you again soon. Thanks so much and have a great afternoon.